There was a pastor who was serving a very poor rural congregation, and day after day, people came to the church asking for food or for money for groceries, and the pastor gave what she could, but she felt like it was sort of a drop in the bucket of need, you know, and she began to pray about this and became convicted, convinced that God was calling the church to open a food bank right there at the church. And so the pastor was very excited about that. And the next step was to survey her congregation and see what they thought about it. So she did that. She surveyed the congregation and she asked them, should there be a food bank at the church? And the overwhelming answer was yes. You know, nearly everybody who answered the survey said, yes, there should be a food bank at the church. So the pastor then took the next step and set a meeting, an organizational meeting for that ministry. And because of the re results of the survey where so many people said yes, she thought, well, you know, I need to reserve the sanctuary for this meeting. And that's what she did. She reserved the sanctuary. She figured nearly everybody in the church would show up for this. So the night of the meeting, she turns on all the lights, she gets ready for everybody to come, and the time for the meeting arrives, and there's only three people there. Herself, the choir director, and the lay leader of the church. And as you can imagine, the pastor was really disappointed and confused. She walked over to her lay leader and said, I just don't get it. I, I do not get it. I mean, I asked the congregation, I surveyed the congregation, I asked them, should there be a food bank at the church? And nearly everybody said, yes, where are they? And the lay leader said, well, I think you might have asked the wrong question. You asked, should there be a food bank at the church? You didn't ask, who would help with one? And friends, that night the pastor learned a very hard lesson it is one thing to believe that doing something is a really good idea, and it's another thing altogether to actually do it. And the father of Methodism, John Wesley, understood that too, and for that reason, when he came up with three simple rules to live by, three simple rules to guide our lives of faith, to keep us on the path of spiritual growth, the second rule that he came up with was do good. Now, like last week's rule, the first one, which was do no harm. Y'all remember that, right? Last week was do no harm. Like last week's, this one, do good, seems rather basic, doesn't it? Sort of the minimum and kind of obvious, don't you think? I mean, Christian people should know that they are called to do good. And we have the, the greatest commandment memorized, don't we? We know it. Boy, I know you do. Because I came to this church and I found out that you say it together every single week right before we read Scripture and we just said it together. We know that we are called to love God with our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. We know that. But Wesley understood that you can know that. You can believe in that commandment. You can stand for that commandment. You can say all day that that commandment is essential to the Christian life and not lift a finger to live it out. So for that reason, when he came up with a second rule to live by, he knew he had to remind us that we must actually do good. Jesus told a parable about this, you know, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. And some scholars say that the telling of this parable 
was one of the things that put Jesus on the express train to the cross. He told this parable during the last week of his life, right after he thoroughly ticked off the religious establishment by riding into Jerusalem during the Passover festival on the back of a donkey, while crowds lined the roads and waved palm branches and shouted Hosanna, which means save us, they were hailing him as a hero. Then he followed that up by going over to the temple and throwing out all of the money changers. Remember that? He threw all those guys out onto the street. So by the time Jesus came back to the temple to teach, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they were really upset. So they cornered him there. They confronted him. And they asked, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? In other words, who do you think that you are? And rather than answer them directly, Jesus did something that was typical for him. He asked a question, and then he told a story. What do you think? He asked. There was a father who owned a vineyard, and he had two sons. And he went to his first son, and he said, son, I need you to go work in the vineyard today. And that son said, mm, no, but later changed his mind, and he went. Then the father went to the second son and asked the same thing. Son, will you go today to the vineyard to work? And that son said, Yes, I will go, but then later changed his mind, and he did not. Of the two sons, said Jesus, which one did the will of the father? Now, that's an easy one, right? We know the answer. The chief priests, the elders, the scribes, they knew the answer too. It is an obvious one. It's the first son, correct? The first one did the will of the father, the one who initially said no, but then changed his mind and went. Apparently, it wasn't what they said that mattered. It was what they actually did. But this isn't the part that put Jesus on the express train to the cross. No, it's what came next. When he told the chief priests and the scribes and the elders which brother they were. Oh, you're the second brother, he said. You believe all the right things, and you say all the right things, and you stand for all the right things, but you do not do the right things that God asks you to do. In other words, I see your mouths moving a lot, but I don't see your feet going anywhere. Now, I realize, friends, that uh, this text could be understood as a condemnation of old-fashioned hypocrisy. And I've heard it preached that way many times. I'm sure you have too. And it is true that throughout Scripture, Jesus does condemn hypocrisy. In fact, if you, you go forward a couple of chapters to chapter 23, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites. So he's not a, a big fan of hypocrisy. And it's also true that hypocrisy has been a charge leveled at religious people for a very long time. And it still happens today. Friends, I think it's really important that we're honest with ourselves, you know, that we, we face what's going on out in the world. We're real about that. We have an image problem. Have you noticed this? We have an image problem. 
many people in the larger culture, especially younger people, have come to believe that Christians are those who sit in the pew on Sunday morning and say that they love their neighbor, but then Monday comes and they're mean and nasty and judgmental to other people. There are a lot of folks who believe that. And putting on some sort of pretend religious face while all the while doing unkind things is a serious. It's a very serious thing, but I, I will also say that I'm not so concerned about conscious hypocrisy as much as I am the unconscious way, we tend to substitute beliefs about God for obedience to God. We do this unconsciously, as if saying, I will go, is the same as showing up in the vineyard. Now, I don't know how this starts. Maybe in today's culture, it starts by immersion in a society that's an engaged in an ongoing war of words. We know we live in the midst of that, don't we? It's like a tsunami of words. And if we immerse ourselves in that thoroughly, friends, we can come to believe that our opinion is the most important thing in the whole wide world. That our opinion is the be-all and end-all. And actions, mm, they can kind of go out the window. I have a really dear friend, good friend, who spends a lot of her free time listening to talk radio. Um, and, and I gotta tell you, I've said it to her, I don't get it. I don't get it. A lot of the shows she listens to just give me a headache uh, because they sound like just a bunch of shouting to me. People actually scream at one another on these talk shows. They will go to the mat on their opinion, you know? And they will say horrible, vitriolic, nasty things all about their opinion. And I don't know, friends, it seems to me that if you worship at that altar long enough, you really can become one of those who believes that what we think in our head is more important than anything, including how we live or how our neighbor lives. We can end up, as my father used to call it, being an armchair quarterback. You know what that means? We're sitting on the sideline in our lazy boy shouting our opinions. But in our mind, we think we're out on the field. Or maybe on the softer side, as one of my colleagues says, the real issue is that we have such great imaginations. We have such great imaginations that we can come to believe that we've done things that we've only thought about. I think you know what I mean. For example, a really good friend, a dear friend of yours is going through a really hard time and you love your friend and so you think, you know, I need to reach out. I, I need to call, I need to write, I need to visit my friend who's hurting. And and we can end up thinking about that so much. You know, it gets very specific. Have you ever done that? Like you get out your calendar and you look and you see, when could I drop in and see the friend? Or, oh, I don't know, maybe you go to the store and you're looking at the cards and you think that would be a good one for my friend and I can think of what I would write in there. Or you rehearse in your mind that phone call and what you would say to them. And that's as far as it goes. You don't do any of those things, but 
somehow you feel like it's sort of the same as if you did, you give yourself credit for your great thoughtfulness and then you move on. Friends, please tell me I'm not the only person who does things like this. Okay. I'll confess, I've even had times where later I thought, well, did I send the card? I thought about it so much. I thought about what I would write in there. Maybe I did. Friends, I'm, I mean to do good. I mean to reach out. I mean to show love. I believe that that is the good and right thing to do, but sometimes I, I substitute those beliefs for actions. Actually, I think it's very easy to do that. I think it's very, very easy to substitute our beliefs for actions. I do to get those all mixed up. For example, I know several people right now, and I bet you do too, who say they believe that caring for God's creation, caring for the environment is very important, but they've never recycled so much as a piece of paper in their entire life. Or they say they believe that democracy is very important. They believe in democracy, but they're not registered to vote. Or they, they say they believe that the family is very important, but they don't seem to spend very much time with their family. Or they believe that church is very important, but they don't attend church regularly, and they don't give to their church, and they don't serve for their church in any way. It's so odd, isn't it? This gap between what we believe and what we do, and it's just so easy to live in that gap. But friends, as, as Christian people, we can't do that. Because Jesus calls us to close that gap. He does. He makes it very clear that believing in doing good and actually doing good are not the same thing. They're not equivalent. You see, friends, there's not a single faith statement that we can utter. There's no mission statement. There's no identity statement. There's no list of core values that we can rattle off that is equivalent to one single act of love or kindness or mercy in this world. There just isn't. There's not one creed that we can speak that is equal to a cup of water for the thirsty or food for the hungry or clothing for the naked or making that visit to a friend who is so lonely or putting an arm around somebody who is in the greatest grief. All the good intentions in the world are not the same as doing good. Now, I got to tell you, I don't think there's any shortage of people in this world who will tell you what they believe, that what they believe is right, or they'll stand for the right things, they'll say the right things. There have always been plenty of people like that. I think what Jesus is teaching us in this text is that what God really needs are some people who will get up out of their chairs and actually do good. 
As the author Kyle Eidelman says, Jesus is much more interested in followers than fans. I think our brother Wesley was on to something, don't you? So the second rule to live by is this, do good. Will you pray with me? Most loving God, how grateful we are that you are so patient with us and that you love us so much because you understand how so often there is a gap between our heart and our hands, between what we believe and our actions in the world. Lord, help us to close that gap, to be your hands and face and feet as we go through life, to live according to the second rule. Lord, help us to do good. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.